We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now that's what I call science. Hello, listeners. You're tuned into That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show bringing you independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station, so head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and Pakana. We're recording here on Luchuita, but since we are a podcast, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, our listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here in the studio, I pay my respects to Elders past and present. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Hannah Moore. Today, we will be talking about Antarctic ice cores and volcanoes. So grab your beanies and your bikinis, folks, because this episode is going to be ice cold and red hot at the same time. Over to Hannah to introduce our expert guest. Thanks, Ollie, and welcome, Meg. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm excited to talk to you today because our research worlds slightly overlap. Um, We both have an interest in volcanoes. And in fact, we were both in New Zealand at the start of the year for a volcano conference. Meg Harlan is not just a PhD candidate. She's pursuing a dual degree at both the University of Tasmania and the University of Copenhagen. And if that's not impressive enough, she also has a master's in climate change and a bachelor's in environmental science and dance. Yep, you heard that right. She's got moves both in and out of the lab. For her PhD, Meg is interested in using polar ice cores to understand past changes in the Earth system. Um, So Meg, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Meg. I'm originally from the US, but I uh, came to Tasmania a couple years ago um, to do a PhD here at the University of Tasmania um, at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies, and I work with uh, Antarctic ice core data. Amazing. It sounds like you're not just a science whiz, but you've also got some fancy footwork too. Please tell us about your rather unusual bachelor's degree in environmental science and dance. What inspired you to pursue such a unique combination of disciplines? Yeah, well, I've been dancing my whole life. Um, like a lot of little girls, my parents put me in ballet class as a as a child, um, and I just never really stopped. Um, and I got to uh, the point of doing a bachelor's degree, and the university I went to in the U.S. Um, had the opportunity to do a major in science and either a double major in art or a minor in art or something like that. Um, And so I was thinking that I would just do a minor in dance just because I enjoyed dancing and through the university I could take lots of dance classes for free or, you know, not for free, but paid for with my university tuition. Um, So I just took a lot of dance classes because I enjoyed it. Um, And it sort of rolled around to my last year of university and the director of the dance department sort of told me, look, like you've taken so many dance classes just for fun. If you take a couple of academic dance classes, you can double major. Or if you take one extra semester in the dance company, so a performance credit, 
um, we can actually turn it into a dual degree. So I have a separate Bachelor of Science in Environmental Science and a Bachelor of Arts in Dance. And so that just meant taking a few extra dance classes, a couple of academic dance classes, because taking dance at a university is a little bit different than studying dance at an arts conservatory. So I had to take uh, dance history and dance terminology um, and things like that. Um, But yeah, so it's just happened by accident, but it was a really nice way to sort of recognize the the commitment that I had to to dance. And um, I don't dance as much as I would like to these days, um, but I do still enjoy it. That's really cool. So now you're doing your PhD here at the University of Tasmania, as well as the University of Copenhagen. So would you mind just giving us a brief overview of your PhD? Yeah, so like you said, I'm doing a, a dual degree or a co-tutel. So that means that I, at the end of this, if all goes according to plan, I'll have one PhD from two universities. Um, so, And the reason that that was all put together is I was living in Copenhagen when I started the PhD, and it was uh, while the Australian borders were still closed. So I was starting a PhD on my own from my apartment in Copenhagen, and it felt a little isolating. And I know a lot of people had similar experiences through that time, but I was really lucky to still have affiliations with the University of Copenhagen. Um, I had been working as a research assistant after my master's there, and through that I was able to arrange the co-tutel agreement with the two universities And that's also partly because the ice core that I'm working with, which is getting a bit more into the science now, um, the ice core that I'm working with was originally drilled um, as an Australian project, but a joint project with the the Danish ice core drilling team. So there were Danish and Australian researchers on that um, drilling project in Antarctica. There are also researchers from Canada and other places, but it was um, a big Danish-Australian effort. Uh, and the, the data that I'm using for the project was actually melted and analyzed. The ice was melted and analyzed in Copenhagen during my master's. So I had a bit of a, an affiliation with the two universities already through that. And we were able to get the co-tutel arrangement um, sorted out, which has been really great. Um, it meant that before the Australian borders opened, I could have a desk and do some lab work uh, from Copenhagen. And I wasn't just by myself starting a PhD in my apartment all alone. Um, which was an immense help, you know, during such an isolating time. Um, But it also has given me really great research opportunities as well to have the affiliation with both universities. Um, So the project itself, um, I'm mainly using an East Antarctic ice core from a site called Mount Brown South, um, which is a fairly coastal site in East Antarctica. Um, Sort of, if you picture the southern ocean, um, if we go straight down from the Indian Ocean um, through the Southern Ocean, you get to the coast of Antarctica, and it's that sort of coastline area that we're looking at. Um, And so this ice core site is really interesting because it preserves climate signals from the lower latitudes, so it will preserve climate signals from the Indian Ocean and the region, but at, at lower latitudes, so closer to the equator. Um, And what I'm particularly looking at is volcanic signals in the ice. So when a volcano erupts, it produces, or it can produce, it doesn't always, but it can produce a cloud of ash and other particulates and gases. Um, And that cloud can get incorporated into weather systems and transported um, really great distances. In the case of really large eruptions, it can be transported around the whole globe. Um, But in the case of smaller eruptions, it tends to be smaller distances. Um, But 
that material can then uh, fall out when it snows over the ice sheet, either Greenland or Antarctica. Um, and so I'm looking for these volcanic particles that have come from the cloud produced by a volcanic eruption. Um, and we can isolate those tiny volcanic particles in the ice itself. Um, and from the depth that we know that those particles came from, we can then date them and match them to eruptions. And we can also use the chemical composition of the volcanic material itself to correlate with specific eruptions that we know a lot about. So what I'm mostly interested in is um, a small set of volcanic islands in the middle of the southern Indian Ocean, uh, home to Australia's only active volcanoes, uh, heard in McDonald Islands. Um, the volcano that I'm looking at primarily um, is called Big Ben. Um, and it's in an area of the southern Indian Ocean that experiences uh, significant phytoplankton blooms for the southern ocean, which is relatively barren in terms of um, biological activity. So we want to understand if the eruptions of the volcano is influencing the phytoplankton productivity. And the mechanism that that would happen would presumably be through um, iron content in the volcanic ash. So I'm aiming to look for volcanic signals uh, from these particular volcanoes in the ice core that is in sort of weather circulation terms relatively close by. So from the atmospheric modeling I've done, it looks like um, material from that volcano could make it to the ice core site in around five days um, and try to then correlate past volcanic eruptions with satellite chlorophyll data and then be able to extrapolate farther back in time just to understand the link between the volcanic eruption and the phytoplankton blooms in the Southern Ocean. Stick with us for part two, listeners, as we dive even deeper into Meg's current work, which combines ice cores and volcanoes. If you're enjoying the show today, make sure you check us out on Instagram or Twitter at ThatScienceTaz, on our website, ThatScienceTaz.org, or on Facebook at That's What I Call Science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're delving into the world of ice cores, which serve as time capsules unlocking the secrets of our planet's climate history. My name is Hannah Moore, and I'm joined by Ollie Dove, along with expert guest Meg Harlan from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies and the University of Copenhagen. So, Meg, could you please tell us what is phytoplankton exactly? Phytoplankton are small, typically microscopic or very small photosynthetic algae. So that means that they are like plants floating around in the ocean that make energy from the sun. And they typically form the bottom of the food chain. Thank you for that explanation. Um, it's really good to get some uh, context on that. Um, so how do volcanic eruptions tie into the phytoplankton productivity in the surrounding oceans? Can you elaborate on the connections between these they seem kind of unrelated things but yeah how do they tie into each other yeah that's a really great question um so especially in the southern ocean uh one of the things that's really important and you've had a past guest discuss this actually um jake weiss talked about uh, uh biological iron fertilization in the ocean and he was talking about how um wildfire and dust particles can influence the 
the fertilization of the ocean. But another mechanism to get that iron into the ocean is these volcanic eruptions. So the Southern Ocean is generally quite low in iron. We might call it anemic, like when uh, the human body is low in iron. Um, it's an essential micronutrient for life. Um, and it is quite limited. So in the Southern Ocean, often iron is the thing that is limiting the growth of these photosynthetic phytoplankton that form the base of the food chain. And so when volcanoes erupt, they often can spew a lot of um, ash into the atmosphere, and that can then fall out over the ocean, and those ash particles can contain a lot of iron. And so what we're trying to understand is... Um, does that have a significant impact on phytoplankton growth? Is that iron itself bioavailable? So there are some characteristics to the nutrient itself, which may, may mean that it's easier or harder for the phytoplankton to access. Um, and basically whether that influences the sort of greater productivity of the ocean. So these photosynthetic uh, phytoplankton are the base of the food chain, but then that sort of, as, as food chains go... Um, influences the whole ecosystem. And so that can influence things like carbon drawdown and ocean carbon storage. So it, it can have a really big effect on um, climate and the whole ecosystem. Thanks so much for doing a shout out for one of our past episodes. That's We love a little throwback. But given that volcanoes, it's not as if you can be like, okay, on this date, it's going to erupt and then it will be dropping off those nutrients. You're trying to establish whether or not it's having a significant impact. Are there any problems that are known if it doesn't erupt? Or how long can a volcano go without erupting on Heard Island before it becomes a problem that it hasn't erupted? Yeah, so that's something that we're trying to understand. Um, we have an okay sense of when the when the volcano has been erupting in the past. But because it's really in the middle of nowhere, so it's considered one of the remote, most remote places on Earth, um, it's very rarely observed to be erupting by people firsthand. Um, so there are some historical records of um, eruptions that have been seen from whaling ships, or there was for a little while um, a, a weather station, a research station on Heard Island um, but those records are really sparse, and basically we only know if the volcano was erupting if there was someone there to see it. Um, so it's very much, uh, does a, if a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to see it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the problem is compounded by the fact that a lot of volcano observations are done via satellite. Um, so you have sort of visual or thermal satellite data of volcanic eruptions, which can be really helpful in understanding sort of global volcanic activity. Um, but Heard Island is in this part of the Southern Ocean that is very cloudy. So five days out of six, the island is completely covered by clouds, uh, which means that the visi visible satellite data is really unreliable. And the thermal satellite data can still be helpful in understanding whether the volcano is erupting or not, but it doesn't give us any information about any sort of ash plume coming from the volcano. So we don't have a good sense of um, how often there would be volcanic product that would make it into the ocean. And that's where the ice core record comes in, because presumably if there is a big enough ash cloud to make it into the ocean and to really influence uh, productivity there, 
we hypothesized that it would also make it to our ice core site based on um, weather patterns that I've done some atmospheric circulation modeling to look into um, whether that is a, a transport pathway that would make sense. Um, and it does seem like there there is uh, realistic scenarios where um, volcanic ash would make it to the ice core site. And so the ice core is really there to help us understand how often this volcano has been erupting through the past. Um, and that brings to your question, Ollie, about um, what what happens if the volcano doesn't erupt for a long time? How does that Im- influence the biological productivity? And that's what we're trying to figure out. So we we there are a number of studies that have looked at the iron content of volcanic ash and sort of more, you know, a bit more abstract. So they're sampling atmosphere from around the volcano and looking into the, the ash content and the, the iron content in the volcanic aerosols, basically. Um, but there's not really been much to look at the direct eruption phytoplankton bloom relationship, and that's what we're trying to establish. So we don't know whether the volcano not erupting for a long time would have a significant impact on the ecosystem because we don't we haven't established that relationship yet, and that's what we're trying to do. Yep, totally. That would be a very fascinating result to be able to produce and get to. And given your background in studying climate change, does that have a place in your PhD? Is that any part of what you're currently looking at or you can see that it might be related to the story? Yeah, so the the relationship to climate change really comes in to to the role of phytoplankton in carbon sequestration in the Southern Ocean. Um, And as there's more and more CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, ocean carbon drawdown will become more and more important. Um, And the Southern Ocean plays a really big role in atmospheric carbon drawdown. So a lot of the CO2 in the atmosphere makes its way into the ocean, and the Southern Ocean is quite a significant CO2 sink. Um, And so understanding the the biological productivity in the Southern Ocean is really important and interesting into understanding sort of future carbon drawdown in the region. Stick with us listeners for part three as we take a little dip into Meg's work in Greenland and also talk about her future plans. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking all things fire and ice today. My name is Hannah Moore, and I'm joined by Ollie Dove, along with our expert guest, Meg Harlan, from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies and the University of Copenhagen. So Meg, I believe you recently took part in an expedition to Greenland to drill to the bottom of the ice sheet. Please tell us more about it, and why was your team drilling to the bottom of the ice sheet? Yeah, so I had the really exciting opportunity to participate in the East Greenland Ice Core Project, or East Grip, which is the current ice core drilling project that has been going on in Northeast Greenland for the past seven years. Um, it's led by the University of Copenhagen, but it's a really big international collaboration. So there are researchers from around the world who are participating in the project, um, And so over the course of the past seven years, um, including a two-year COVID hiatus, um, the the team has been drilling an ice core through the Northeast Greenland ice stream. So the Northeast Greenland ice stream is um, an area of faster flowing ice. Um, And when I'm talking about faster flowing ice, you have to really think about the fact that ice is 
solid, but ice also flows. So glaciers are always moving. Um, typically, they're moving quite slow. That's why we say things move at a glacial pace. Um, but there are areas on ice sheets where the ice is moving faster than others, and they're like rivers in the ice itself. Um, and these ice streams are really important to understand because the majority of glacier mass loss comes through these ice streams where ice is flowing out from the ice sheet and typically into the ocean where then it breaks off as icebergs and there are these massive calving events which are uh, major contributors to ice mass loss and sea level rise. Um, so understanding why these ice, stre ice streams are flowing the way they are is really interesting and important to sort of have a better understanding of um, ice sheets as a whole, but also to look at the influence of climate change on these ice streams and how it um, correlates with sea level rise. And what's involved in that sort of field trip? What is it like day to day being out there working? Yeah, so um, I was really lucky to go as a field assistant, which meant that I was doing sort of odd jobs around camp. So this is um, a camp that is there and manned during the summer months. So the, the facilities are there year round, but there are only people there during the summer. Um, and it's typically a, a, a small to medium sized team. So while I was there, the camp ranged from around 15 to 30 people. Um, and day to day life in the field camp is really interesting. And it's quite different from day to day life at home. Um, so Every, every aspect of everyday life involves moving snow from one place to another. When you're, when you're living on top of an ice sheet, which is just made up of, you know, two kilometers, two and a half kilometers of snow that has compressed into ice, um, snow is something you have to deal with a lot of. Um, so, for example, all of our running water comes from snow that we melt. Um, so our electricity is produced by generators. And so the, the excess heat from that generator is used to melt snow that we use for our drinking water, our dishwashing, laundry, showers, everything like that is, comes from melted snow. So that's just one example of sort of how day-to-day -day life looks a little bit different on the ice sheet. Um, typically, we work uh, from about 8 a.m. to about 7 p.m. There's a, a cook in camp who feeds us three lovely meals a day, um, and we spend the rest of the time doing uh, scientific and logistic and camp maintenance work throughout the day. Um, the, the Ice Core project in Greenland is really fascinating because all of the science that happens on the ice takes place in snow caves that they've constructed in the ice sheet. So it's a really interesting construction method where they dig really large trenches and then they inflate giant balloons in these trenches that are five meters in diameter and maybe 15 meters long. Um, and then they use a snowblower to backfill snow over the balloon and compress it down. And then when they deflate the balloon, you're left with a snow cave. And so those snow caves are where we do all of our work on the ice sheet that needs to be done in a temperature controlled environment. So all of the drilling takes place down there. Um, a lot of the scientific work takes place down there. Typically, it averages around minus 26 degrees Celsius. So you get quite used to working in really cold environments. Um, but it really helps um, keep the, the ice cold enough and keep doing the processing on site is really helpful for the sort of longevity of the ice core itself to sort of maintain the integrity of the ice to be able to do science on it when it gets shipped back to uh, either Copenhagen or Australia or, or Germany or wherever it will end up. That sounds incredibly surreal that you're going underground in ice. Is it 
scary at all? Like, do you ever fear a collapse? Like, how is the structure maintained or does it, it I just can't really even picture, that almost sounds like my worst nightmare of being buried alive in snow. <laughs> so these ice caves are incredibly stable. Um, it's something about the way that the the snow, when it's, it's dug out, from the trenches by a snowblower and then it is put back on top of the balloon by a snowblower and the process of the snow going through the snowblower really allows the the snow to sinter together really really strongly into a, a roof so the the roof of these snow caves is strong enough that you can drive a tractor over them and have no issue um, the one thing that becomes uh a little bit interesting is year after year, as it snows more and more, there's more weight put on the top of these snow cave roofs. And so the ceiling does get lower and lower each year, but it is, it's very slow and it's quite predictable. Um, and it's actually a lot safer and a lot better year to year than if you had a sort of support structure under the snow. So in many sites, they will build like a wooden sort of frame cabin structure and then infill the snow on top of that. Um, And you come back a year or two later and the weight of the snow has completely crushed that wooden structure Um, and the the beams have all splintered and things like that. But when it's just snow with no other structure, the snow deforms in such a way that the roof maintains its stability. So it's actually um, longevity-wise quite a bit safer and it also means that Um, after a significant amount of time, you don't have to leave construction materials in the ice sheet. So if you come back years later, the wooden frame that you built to maintain these snow caves can't be dug out. It just has to be left behind as sort of garbage that stays in the ice. Wow, that's really fascinating and a little bit eerie. When you're not busy with your PhD research, you have a lot of hobbies. So I hear that you really enjoy knitting, sewing, We've talked about dancing and you like going for long walks. Um, So how do these hobbies help you to unwind and recharge from your scientific endeavors? Yeah, I think it's incredibly valuable to have hobbies. I think that hobbies are really undervalued, especially sort of in the the grind of academia. Um, And I find for myself personally that doing something with my hands really helps de-stress, take my mind off things, or it can help sort of just process what I'm thinking about. So if I'm writing a paper and I get stuck trying to describe the setup of an analytical system in a scientific paper, um, being able to to take a step back and do something completely different and um, just sort of reset my brain is, I think, really helpful. Um, And so I think that these sort of creative pursuits can really help in that way. Also, it's just really fun. That's so awesome. We love to hear about people's passions outside of their work because, as you say, there's so much more to an academic's life than just, you know, data analysis. Although it sounds like even in your academic life, you have incredible adventures. Um, But unfortunately, we are out of time. So thank you so much for coming in today and talking with us. And listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We love bringing you STEM-related content and we really hope you enjoyed the show today. If you love the show, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. My name is Ollie Dove and I'd like to thank my co-host Hannah Moore and our expert guest Meg Harlan for joining us today. From us, we hope you all have a wonderful week.
This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. That's What I Call Science is brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find the show at all major podcast streaming services and find out more about us from our social media channels. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all the exciting science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine research in Lutrita, Tasmania. This show is supported and strengthened by Edge Radio, so head over to edgeradio.org.au for more information about them. Thanks for tuning in today, and may your week be stemtastic.